great to see you. I always feel really at home here. And maybe this will be the time when I don't actually cry. <laughs> well, okay, right. I must make sure at some point I cry because truly every time I come here, you make me cry in a really good way. So that's fine. Um, so tonight, I, I need to stop by quarter past eight, apparently. Quarter past eight, there's going to be a break. And then there's going to be a little bit me, me just doing a quick recap. And then there's going to be some question and answers. I really love the idea of that because we learn way more from dialogue than monologue. And for the next 45 minutes, it's going to be monologue, which is of limited value, but it helps. Okay. Um, so just partner with me and listen fast. Um, I've created a set of slides. Um, I have got no issue with those slides or a version of them being shared, you know, distributed. They, they are quite substantial in some places because really what I want to do tonight is contribute to a conversation. I do not intend to give you an answer. I intend to contribute to a conversation that is already going on and will continue after I stop talking. And tonight I'm going to talk about fellowship, leadership, and followership. Taking our lead from the dance of the Trinity. The Eastern Orthodox Church try to figure out how to describe the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they came up with a great word called perichoresis. Perichoresis is a Greek word that just means dance. Because when they looked at the Trinity, they decided actually the best way we can describe how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit flow together is to call it a dance, perichoresis. My thesis is that in Genesis 1.26, when God said, let us make man in our image, that that was a moment in time when God decided as community to extend community through creation, and he created them male and female. So he created community from community. And I believe that koinonia, which is the fellowship of the church, which the first mention of the word fellowship in the New Testament is Acts 2.42, fellowship, koinonia, the church, is intended by God to be an expression of, an extension of the community that existed and still exists within the Trinity. Hence the two posh words on the slide, perichoresis, which just means dance of the Trinity, and koinonia, which just means fellowship. So partly tonight, we will use a few Greek words. Um, I know a little Greek, he runs a restaurant down the road. The old ones are the best. Um, So anyway, um, why do I do that? But anyway, I can't help myself. It's not in my notes. So the next slide is just a picture that I kind of created to describe my journey here many times over the years. This is a picture that is a picture of journey. It's the M62 in all of its glory. And actually on this slide, for once, the traffic appears to be flowing quite freely. I had to search the internet really hard to find a picture of the M62 that looked like that, let me tell you. I had many other options. None of them were as glorious as this one. So I went for this one, yeah? Um, it's a privilege, it has been a privilege over many years for Sarah and I to contribute to your journey and I get to do it again tonight and I don't take that lightly, it is an absolute privilege. When I share with you, what I bring you which is unique is perspective, my perspective. Do I think that I think it's a really valuable insight to us all individually and collectively. And what I intend to do is contribute to a conversation. I don't intend to shut it down with this is the answer. Once I tell you what the answer is, there's no more thing, there's nothing to talk about now, is it? Because it's the answer. So I'm going to give you what I think, what I see, what I believe the Lord is saying to you. Whenever I come here, I really come with this idea that I would say only what I feel he has said to me. That isn't intended to make you then have to accept it as if it's from the Lord, because you've got to weigh it. The Bereans were brilliant at this. 
Paul says it, but I'm just going to search the scriptures to see if what Paul is saying is true. So I'm encouraging you to lean in, to listen, to listen to me. My goal when I meet with you is always to give you the best of myself. So whatever I do tonight, it's going to be the best I can do. And I trust through the grace of God that that is sufficient. My best is sufficient for you. Um, And that ultimately what I share tonight, you would bring into dialogue with your history as a way of shaping your future. It's really important that we bring things into dialogue with our history in order to shape our future. Otherwise, our history becomes our future. There is no prospect of transformation or change. Over the last few years, and it's continuing even now, you and us, I, we have all been through what I consider to be a process of cultural transformation that continues both inside and outside of the church. Many years ago, Sarah and I showed up for a weekend and we talked about what does it mean to be loved, free and powerful. That was a life-changing weekend for us. And I know many of you still think back to that if you were involved. And at that time, I really believed that God was releasing something powerful in us all, but that we then needed to be able to steward. Um, Because the cry of freedom, when it breaks out, can have lots of great and helpful and healthy side effects, but it also can have some that are less desirable. And one of those areas is in the context of leadership. I think as the culture shifts to a culture where we all decide, and rightly so, that we are loved, we are free, and we are powerful, we can end up having to reconfigure leadership in a way that works and makes sense in the context of that cultural shift. And one of, the, one of the side effects of that cultural shift is that we can decide we don't really need leadership anymore because we all get to be loved, free, and powerful, so we all get to lead. And I've been on a journey for many years writing, as many of you know, um, particularly populating Facebook, um, with, with my musings about what does leadership look like and sound like in the context of a cultural shift where we all decide, rightly, that we get to be loved, free, and powerful. And I'm going to share something out of that journey. We've also been, I think, through a paradigm shift that we, we I could probably describe in, in this way. It's really been about moving away from patriarchy, where male leadership gets to dominate, to a situation where actually you could end up with anarchy. And I'm going to talk a little bit about anarchy later on. Oh, that sounds like a scary word, um, but it's not as scary as you think. There's been a shift away from pastoral leadership to apostolic leadership, as if we got rid of, we kind of made all the pastors redundant because they weren't getting us very far. And we decided what we really needed was apostolic leadership because that's what it's all about, vision and direction and execution. And then the body parts are everywhere. Why? Because we kind of kicked out pastoral leadership rather than worked out how to bring both apostolic leadership and pastoral leadership into dialogue with one another in a way that works. And then we shifted away from command and control. So the paradigm shift was command and control. Now it's all about consensus. So now we burn like endless calories trying to figure out what we can all agree about in order to move forwards. And so we've had to live with our history that has dealt with cultural transformation, paradigm shifts, all of that's going on to some extent, whether you realize it or not, in you and around you. And in the context of all of that, we have to think about leadership. So where do you go? Where you go is to the Trinity, in my view, because I think if we can understand that actually within the Trinity, there is so much for us to learn about what it looks to looks like to be led 
and to lead in the times of change that we're all experiencing. So, as I said to you on my next slide, 126, there's this idea that community creates community. God creates community. And within that community, he find, we find, in my view, we find fellowship, we find leadership, and we find followership. And I want just to talk about those three things. So on the next slide, what I've got here is this sense of, I don't know if you can see it very well. Oh, yeah, you can. If you look at the Trinity, and you, and you kind of look at it through the lens of fellowship, and if I said nothing else to you tonight, I would say that at the heart of any discussion about what does it mean to be in fellowship with one another, what does it look like to lead, and what does it look like to follow, at the heart of that is love. Love is at the heart of the Trinity. God is love. So you look at God and what you see is love personified through three personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does that Trinity involve? It involves relationship. There are individuals within the Trinity called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're different. So there's individuality, but there's also unity. How to be different and to be united. I think we need a cross for that. Good job we have one. There's mutuality within, there's a mutual respect, there's a mutual submission, there's a mutual honor of one another within the Trinity. And then there's equality. At no point do you and I ever get the sense that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are worried about their position relative to one another. When a dance is done well, it's really hard to know who's following and who's following. You learn that from the Trinity. We can glimpse this from some of the things that Jesus has said. So in John 15, verse 9 and 10, Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So he's taking the Father's love that he is embracing and he's sharing it with us. Now remain in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. So you can just see this wonderful weave between Trinity, relationship between father and son, and son, the son, and us as sons and daughters. In John 17, 20, he says, my prayer is not for them alone, talking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me, that I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, that the world will know you sent me and have loved me, even as, loved them, even as you have loved me. Just through the glimpses in John 15 and John 17, and there are more, you get this sense about Jesus' awareness that he is, as, as one of the persons within the Godhead who's enjoying love and fellowship and unity, there's this, this idea that he's extending that into the world. And it's expressed, intended to be expressed through the church. So what does leadership and followership in the image of God look like? And the next slide really is a triangle. The triangle at the heart of this is love. At the heart of the Trinity, when you look at the Trinity, what you see is God is love. And the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is all about love. I could say that many times tonight. But as you look at the Trinity, I think it's possible to look at the Trinity and see both three things. Fellowship, leadership, and followership. And that's really going to be the three kotoks on which I want to share tonight. I think it's really important that we understand leadership and followership in the context of fellowship. We spend a lot of time talking about leadership. I'm guilty of that. I write a lot about it. I think 
we talk less about fellowship and we talk even less about followership. And tonight I want to try and create a balance, really, where I'm looking at all three of those through three of those lenses. But what does um, leadership and followership look like when we look at the Trinity? So again, the next slide shows you love is at the center. And then at the center of the Trinity, when it comes to leadership and followership, there are roles. There are roles within the Trinity. Father and Son and Holy Spirit perform different tasks, different things. They have different responsibilities. They all carry authority. There is submission. There is command. There is obedience. You know, Jesus is very clear. The Father has commanded me. The Father has commanded me. It's a word that we feel very uncomfortable with in this day, command. We'll come back to it later on. But Jesus is very clear that he received commands from the Father, which he didn't trip up over and stumble over and said, hang on a minute, who's in charge around here? But in the Trinity, there's this model of how to lead and be led in a beautiful and a unique way. And we would do well to pay attention to how the Trinity does this. And we'll look a little bit at that tonight. So let's just briefly talk about fellowship. So what I'm going to do now is talk about fellowship, leadership, and followership. So I've just got some verses, 1 Corinthians 1, 9 on fellowship, and it says this, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So when we, our relationship with him. But actually, fellowship is both vertical and horizontal. And in Acts 2.42, the hallmark of the church on its birthday was a devotion to one another, which is described in Acts 2.42 as fellowship. And that word, we'll, we'll talk about that word a little bit further. So fellowship, koinonia, has this vertical and horizontal dimension to it. And then in 1 John 1, 3 and 6 and 7, the Apostle John says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So there you can see fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out of the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. The church, we've talked a lot about belonging, we've talked a lot about family. Fundamentally, the church is intended to be fellowship. Fellowship in the image of God that looks like a personal relationship with him expressed and embodied through a personal relationship with one another. Our difficulty is we spend a lot of our t- a lot of time <clears throat> focused on kind of figuring out how to get on with one another. And actually, the only way in which we're all going to get on is if we all focus on getting on with him. So my first, maybe, and I know I've said this to you before, is don't try and have a relationship with me but outside of a relationship with Jesus because you're going to fall over me in a nanosecond. The only way you'll be able to handle fellowship with me because I'm not perfect is to be in fellowship with the one who is. And then all of a sudden, I'm much easier to get on with, right? But the church so easily finds itself distracted by itself, taking its eyes off the one that really matters and the one who made it all possible for us to get on. As I said to you, the fellowship, the Greek word for that is koinonia. If I was just to kind of simplify that for you. Koinonia is really about a deep and meaningful relationship with him expressed through a relationship with one another. And our relationship with one another is all about our new life in Christ. 
So whatever else we don't have in common, the one thing we do have in common is we have a shared life in him. That looks like actively contributing, actively participating, and actively sharing, not just in his life, expressed through my vertical relationship with God, but in our shared life with one another. I talked to you, I think, a few weeks ago, maybe the weekend away, when I said, in this day and age, we talk a lot about inviting Jesus into our lives. I actually think that's the wrong way around. I think what we need to understand is becoming a Christian is all about accepting his invitation to enter into his life. And the moment you enter into his life, you cannot get away from it. You are entering into his body, which is called the church. This is difficult for some of us because we've sacked off church in favor of a relationship with Jesus. Because me and Jesus get on great, but I struggle with the rest of you. It's not possible. Well, it's certainly not happy and it's not healthy, which is one of my passions is to encourage people to kind of like stick with the program. There is no plan B. There is only going to be plan A and it's called the church. And we have to figure out how to do church in a way that doesn't cause people to fall over it, but actually fall in love with it because ultimately it's meant to be expression of him. When you take fellowship apart and you look at it, particularly in the context of, of Acts 2, what you, what you see are there, are there are two hooks that I want to just give you that you probably want to do some further study on. Whether, one is this idea of devotion. So Acts 2.42 says, and they devoted themselves to. Devotion, proskoterio, is a beautiful Greek word. It's used ten times in the New Testament and eight times in Acts. And devotion... I would say, is a hallmark of the early church. Devotion. What does it mean? Well, in the, in the versions it's used in, in the places it's used, it's really about adhering to, being steadfast, continuing, persevering, being courageous. I like the idea of devotion being about being courageous. It takes courage to get involved with me. It takes courage. You're looking at me like not sure about that, but it's true. It is true. And there's a beautiful verse, actually, in Mark 3 that talks about a boat. There's this little boat that Jesus says, when you go, there'll be a boat there. And he describes the boat, uses the word devote, and the boat will be there devoted to me. It's beautiful. I love the idea of a little boat being devoted to Jesus. What it means is it's a very available to him. Great little word study. If you take devotion, and you're going to see a thesaurus, you get a smorgasbord, if that's even the right way of saying it, of words that actually are all found in this kind of container word, devotion. It's a beautiful, just a meditation and a study, right? So when they say they devoted themselves, what is in that idea of devotion? When the Bible says be devoted, what does it look like? It looks like a whole bunch of things which are beautiful and add to the richness, not just of our language, but actually our experience, or at least they should. The other um, key that I wanted to give you, if you think about fellowship, is the is the so-called one another's of the New Testament. And I know I'm whisking through this because I want to get to some other stuff too, but I want to lay this foundation. The one another's, in Greek it's alelon, it's one word, alelon, but it's translated one another. It can mean mutuality, but it can also mean reciprocity. It occurs 100 times in the New Testament. And the one another's of the New Testament, I think, are a reflection of what does it mean to be in fellowship with God and with one another. And all of these, my thesis is, all of these one another's find their origins in the relationship that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoy. There are 94 
sorry, the 100 times in the Bible, 94 in the New Testament, and 59 of these occurrences are commands. Oh, that's word, that word again. Oh, dear. Um, basically, commanding us how to love and how to relate to each other. I wonder why the New Testament has so many commands that relate to love in one another and getting on with one another. Maybe because ultimately getting on with each other is an act of obedience. Whether you or I like it or not. Um, actually, I believe obedience to the one another commands is actually the hallmark, one of the hallmarks of koinonia. So let's just take a look at some of these. So there are a number of buckets, but I'm just going to give you a few. The one another's that are all to do with love. Right? There's a whole bucket load of one another's that are all to do with love. Just notice the echo to the Trinity. The New Testament, all the time encouraging us to love one another. Why? Because koinonia is meant to be an expression, an extension of the perichoresis. What you see in the Trinity is what you're supposed to see in the church. There's another whole bucket load of one another's on unity. It's amazing, isn't it? You take all these one another's and you find there's all these one another's. Love one another. Be united with one another. Love and unity. These commands overwhelmingly encouraging us, if not commanding us, to pursue with one another love and unity. They're not suggestions. They're not nice ideas. They're commands. They're imperatives. They are, do this. There's another one on humility. You know, one of the keys to getting on with one another is to go low with each other. Not to go high. And so there's a whole pile of one another's in the humility bucket. Again, just seeing within the dance of the Trinity, the way in which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so beautifully and effortlessly and frictionally submit to one another in the process of being God. And then you think about koinonia as an expression of that. No surprise there's a whole bunch of one another's about humility. Because humility is the hallmark of the dance of the Trinity. None of them is fighting for position. All of them, in their own way, willing to go low. And then there's another bucket called the rest. Feel free to do with those what you want. whole bunch of stuff in there. Um, one of them, I think, involves like not eating each other. I seem to remember. Or maybe that's in a different bucket. That's in a previous bucket. I thought that was interesting. Don't eat one another. <clears throat> not sure how hungry you are, but um, it doesn't sound good, does it? I say all of that to say that's a foundation laid very quickly. It's a brilliant vein of truth to go mine, to study, to discuss over tables in small groups. But my point is this, jumping into a conversation about leadership without understanding that the context for those things is fellowship, and that fellowship is an extension of Trinity, is probably not a great idea, because then it just becomes mechanical. And what I'm trying to say to you here is that this conversation about leadership and fellowship, followership is all rooted in community. So let's talk about the bit you really wanted me to talk about, which is leadership. I don't mean Trevor, I mean you. Nervous laughter. Okay. <clears throat> leadership. Here we go. What would I say about leadership firstly? Well, firstly, when, when it comes to what is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. The pro- oh, some, well, yeah, thank you. Um, the problem is that with us, so when we make it prescriptive, we try and look in the Bible for a formula, a set of like, th- there's, a, there's a sheet, there's a manual, there's a textbook that tells us how to do it. And there isn't. It's not pres- descriptive, uh, sorry, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. So we see a description in the Bible of how it was done in the New Testament. 
And I think the goal for us is to learn from the principles and partner with one another and the Lord to create a wineskin called a church, a local church community, that reflects what we basically see in the Bible. Okay, so I'm not going to be able to take the Bible and say, here we go, here's the answer, because that is not how it works. It's a description, it's a story. What does the Bible have to say? Well, in the Old Testament, I think you could say leadership looked like kings. Actually, most of those often were not good. So actually, whilst the kings were doing what they were doing, God was leading through the prophets. Let's hear for the prophets. Um, sorting those terrible kings out. Yeah, I could get distracted at this point, but I won't. Um, there are judges. Judges. Leadership looked like judges. And um, some of those were women. And then there were priests. So there are different roles, and maybe you can think of others too. But I, I kind of at least could think of kings, prophets, judges, priests. Any missing? Anybody else want to throw in another leadership role within the Old Testament? Maybe? Okay. New Testament. Well, what does leadership look like in the New Testament? Well, I think the kingdom has a king. Jesus had way more to say about the kingdom than he did about the church. So maybe the king as a king, him as a king is a good point. The building has a cornerstone and it has a foundation. There's a father and a family. There's a body that has a head and there's a flock that has shepherds. So there's lots of language within the New Testament that kind of really talks to leadership in very different forms. Any, any missing? Anybody could think of any others that you might want to put in there? No. I mean, there might be more. I'm just not suggesting, you know. And I, if I, if you wanted me to, I could give you a Bible verse for all of those, but I thought that would be pretty tedious and I, I haven't got time. But it's in the notes, so you can check me out. Um, but I figure there's leadership embedded in all of those things. So what do we call leaders? So if you go into the, into the New Testament, you get things like apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders, overseers, shepherds, and deacons. And um, maybe there's some missing. But there's lots of descriptions there for leadership. And if you think about it, the church has spent the last 2,000 years trying to figure out. And bishop's probably missing, isn't it? That's an obvious one that's missing. Bishop. Um, what words and titles and to use to describe leadership? And if you look today, depending on what stream you're paddling in, you'll get a different answer to what people call leaders today. Often today, leaders are called leaders. That's an interesting one, isn't it, really? Yeah. <laughs> Millions of pounds of marketing funding went on that decision. What should we call them? Let's just call them leaders. But then we think, now we need to distinguish. So we'll have strategic leaders, senior leaders, pastoral leaders, young leaders. Oh, I remember those days. Oh, and emerging leaders. I remember that chapter in my life too. That was very painful. Yes, I felt like I spent 20 years emerging. Um, and then kind of like got assigned to whatever kind of scrappy. But anyway, never mind. Um, managers, directors, pastors is a very popular one, I find. Even the apostles are called pastors. I don't understand how that works. Do you know what I mean? Like, why would you call somebody a pastor if they're an apostle? This doesn't make any sense to me, but that's slight aside. Um, some streams will still use elders, although because that just word kind of means old man, it caused a lot of people problems when they wanted to make a woman an elder because it felt like it tripped up over some gender issues, but I think those are easily overcome just by calling them elders. Um, deacons. Quite popular. Apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers. Teachers are less so. I don't really see many people go around calling themselves teachers. Feels like some of that's the second class role, so you need to find a better title than that. My point is, really, you know, 
there's a lot of different terms that can be used. You can describe leadership in many different ways. But what can we say about leadership? Well, I think we can say, what can we see in the New Testament? Let's talk about what we can see. I think we can see that leadership is charismatic. That doesn't mean it's got personality. (laughs) It means it's Holy Spirit anointed. It's diverse. There are very different characters at play. The leadership landscape in the New Testament is very interesting, right? Diverse personalities and gifts. Sometimes they get together in team and say, I love that story. It's no use to me. It's going to be very useful to me. So, you know, so you get into this, like, there's diversity, there's teaming, and then there's falling out. There's local leadership, there's translocal leadership. One thing's clear, I think there's a definite sense of accountability as well as responsibility. There is rule, I think, and there is authority. So there are lots of different attributes that I think show up in the New Testament and even the Old Testament that help us to kind of begin to sculpt what leadership could and should look like in our day and age, in our paradigm, in our culture. One of the things I also feel very personally very strong about is that leaders were called They had a very sense, a very clear sense of calling. Paul personified this in many ways. Paul, I am Paul. Interestingly, he's Paul before he's an apostle. I love that order. I was with a paradigm recently, and they they call all of their leaders pastor so-and-so, and and I asked their permission not to do that. I said, do you mind if I don't call you pastor? I'd rather call you by your name. Because before you're a pastor, you're your name. And they were really gracious to me and allowed me to do that, which was great. I didn't want to trample on their culture but I did want to call them by their name. But Paul had a very clear sense. I'm called to be an apostle. And Paul's very clear about his message. I have a gospel. Don't let anybody mess with it. Even if an angel comes and tells you something different, this is my message. Leaders have a very clear sense of calling. I think of also what their message is, what their mission is, and what their metron is. So what their sphere is. Metron is a beautiful Greek word. Paul used it in Corinthians, and it was just about describing what the sphere of his ministry was. And I think leaders... I think it's really important and really good. And it's, I think it's biblical that leaders have that sense. So what could I say for what it's worth? I think taking all of that, I think leadership now looks like leaders who are called, who are gifted and anointed, who are recognized and released to lead with clear roles and responsibilities and remits. The key word there for me is clarity, really. You know, out of that, out of that New Testament soup, right, is like we, we, we're, we're called to distill based on description, not prescription, how we want to describe leadership and what we think leadership is there to do. I just want to share a couple of verses with you, really, that I think really help to ground this biblically. One is Acts twenty twenty eight. I love this verse because in the Bible, what you see is that Paul is talking to elders, So just bear in mind, the Bible says, Paul is talking to elders. And when he talks to elders, he says this, keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. This verse, Ern Baxter used to say, that if you were going to talk about one verse about leadership, he would talk about this verse, because this verse is packed with stuff that I could talk all night about, but I'm not going to, because we've got a break in 15 minutes. He's talking to elders and he is saying, you have been made overseers and therefore you need to be shepherds. So he's linking eldership, overseeing and shepherding together. And he's making a couple of important points in the process. Firstly, you were not voted in. 
And therefore you can't be voted out. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers, right? So there's this charismatic nature to leadership in the New Testament, which I believe is still valid and appropriate today, which is before we get to recognize the Holy Spirit raises up. Holy Spirit-led, anointed, appointed leaders that we get the opportunity to recognize, which is why I love Acts 15.28. It's my model for like decision-making in church. Share it with Vine Life. They love it. Making a decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And this is the wonderful, powerful thing, I think, about recognizing leadership. That is so important. Holy Spirit is raising somebody up to lead. Our role is basically to agree with Holy Spirit and it seemed good to him and to us. And that's the amen of community that recognizes and releases leadership. And it's really important. Where do we put leaders? Where do we put leaders? Do we put them at the top? When we try that, they get very big for their boots. And then sometimes they fall off the pedestal and that's very painful for them and us because they land right on top of us. So what we do is we shove them on the bottom because actually they're meant to be servants and servants are meant to be at the bottom. So we shove them on the bottom and then we think, mm, no, it's not very good there. I said, well, we'll move them to the back, put them at the back, slightly less than down the bottom, but you know, keep them humble, keep them at the back. And then when things get really difficult, we shove them out front. Who's in charge around here? You are excellent, right? I mean, I can search Google and I can find so many great scholarly articles on why you should put leaders in one of those four positions. It drives me crackers, quite frankly. So where do we put them? Don't put them anywhere. Don't put them anywhere. Leadership is intended to be a dance. And if it's a dance, you at any point in time can find leaders at the top, the middle, the bottom, the front, or the back. It's wherever they are needed at the time. Mandela said, and I love this, Mandela said, leaders should be at the back when it comes to taking all the glory because that belongs to the community. And at the front, when it's getting really difficult, right? So I think we can waste a lot of time trying to decide where to put leaders, when in fact we should just let them be wherever they need to be, right? Sometimes the leaders want to put chairs away. And I go, don't do that. I think I once caught Richard. Didn't I do, this is a true story, isn't it? Didn't I see you mopping the toilets once? And I get really quite cross about that. So I'm thinking that's not what he's called and anointed to do. But then he will say to me, yeah, but I'm also called to be a servant. Now, if he was always doing that, I'd have a problem. If he's doing it because in that moment, that's what's needed. And leadership's doing sometimes what's needed. Then actually, I'm okay with that, right? So don't put them anywhere. Just allow them to be where they're meant to be. Let me just talk about Archie to you. Because at one level, leadership is all about what you do with power. And I want to talk to you about Archie. Well, it's actually Archie, if you say it properly, right? These pictures are three models of what you do with power. They're three Archies. So on the left-hand side, you have what's called hierarchy. Yeah? This is where you put everybody in a very neat organizational chart, and the leader is at the top. And then there's the rest of us. And depending on how far down, if you hewlett Packard, there are seven layers. So in HP, global company, you can go from top to bottom, and it's no more than seven layers globally, right? So there's seven layers of hierarchy in HP. I know because I was in there once, and I was trying to work out which level I was at. Um, hierarchy has really had a bad press because we associate with command and control, and we associate with the fact that if somebody's at the top above me, they're better than me. 
Oh, it's going to get difficult now, right? Hierarchy. Does hierarchy exist in the Trinity? I think it does. But actually, we need to be careful because I think what we need to be able to do is redeem hierarchy from our prejudice that says just because somebody's at the top makes them any better than the person below them, right? But we didn't really like hierarchy, so then we went after something called anarchy. And this is the middle one, right? And I I searched Google for a logo for anarchy, and I came back with no gods and no masters. And I thought, this is cultural transformation right here. I am loved, I am free, I am powerful. In other words, nobody is in charge of me. Cultural transformation, swept away leadership. And actually, you could at one level describe it by, as anarchy. Uh, there is somebody right now that, in my life that's talking to me about benign anarchy. Because the goal of anarchy really is to distribute power. And what it's wanting to do is take power away from one person and distribute it to everybody so we all become powerful. My belief is that you can do that without throwing away leadership. You don't have to overthrow hierarchy in order to distribute power. You have to redeem it. But anyway, the middle one is anarchy. But this one on the right-hand side looks like a dance to me. Does it look like a dance to you? This is heterarchy. Now, I didn't even know there was such a thing until I did my research on what to do with Archie. There's a thing called heterarchy. And basically, if you distill heterarchy down, what you get is anybody can be anywhere. And everybody can be connected to everybody else. Because the thing about hierarchy is it suggests that people's connections are determined by where they are on the org chart. But actually, heterarchy says wherever you are in this community... You can be connected to everybody else. And actually, there's fluidity around that. So it's actually brilliant because it just moves things around. Right, I need to move on quickly. Right, what does leadership do? I think leadership do does, a number, does a number of things. I do think it sets vision and direction. I do think it pays attention to values. It creates culture. I do think it looks after people. And I do think it helps them to grow and reproduce. And that list might grow and change as I continue on my journey. But I do think there's a trinity of developing strategy, setting direction, and building the organization. And that would apply not just to churches, but to business too. What does leadership sound like? Well, I think sometimes leadership does look like telling us what the answer is. Sad lack of amens to that, but anyway. (laughs) Sometimes I think leadership does say, here's what I think the answer is, what do you think? And sometimes leadership says, I have no idea what the answer is. Is appropriate, and you see this in the New Testament that leadership can show up in all three of those ways, and that is okay. There's a biblical imperative, I think, or encouragement in Hebrews 13:17, which is my precursor to followership. And this verse says this: Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. I, I was preaching uh, recently in a church, and I, and I didn't quote this verse, but I, I said the, the substance of it. And this lady came up to me after I finished. Sarah's laughing because she had to defend me, or defend her, I think, probably at the end. Um, why did you say that? Why did you say we needed to make our leaders' lives a joy? I was like, just, I've just given my best word. Like, I'm, my spleen is wide open, and this blessed lady comes and attacks me. And Sarah was there to, def- not defend me, but to, to sort of calm me down. But um, I said, why did I say that? I said it because the Bible says it. The Bible says it. 
But it was such a controversial point that I hadn't realized I was making, but it was actually what the Bible said. Ultimately, the important thing is that we have confidence. Whatever we call them, wherever we put them, whatever we decide they can or cannot do, we understand that when we look at the Trinity, we find fellowship and we find leadership. And actually, when we agree and we're clear on how we describe them, what we call it, and that's the role of leadership, then the key is have confidence and submit and make their lives a joy. And if you can't do that with the leaders that you have, go and find leaders that you can do that with. And I'm not picking on you. I say that to every church. Because it's what I believe with all my heart. Because we're all called to follow. So let's talk about followership just to finish. I might slightly overrun, but I'm not doing too badly. Followership. This is my new favorite subject. So countercultural in the church and in the world. I love it because you know me. I like to be a bit mischievous. So once I find something that's a bit like countercultural, I just want to go after it because I love it. Edgy, yeah, that's true. Um, it's a great way to start conversations, though, as I found with this lady, bless her. So the penguins. Followers are by definition, followers are by definition being led. And leaders can accomplish nothing without effective followers. And leaders without followers, as the Chinese proverb says, are merely going for a walk. So we do need, as much as we pay attention to leadership, we we should also pay attention to followership. Um, And I think the most simplest, most simplest, the simplest and most beautiful description of the dance of leadership and followership is 1 Corinthians 11.1. This is it. This is the dance of leadership and followership embodied in so many few words. Follow my example, says Paul, as I follow the example of Christ. Follow me as I follow him. I think there's a beautiful choreography about that. But what does follow really mean? What does it really mean? Well, I think it's summed up in one word, choice. I follow because I choose to. I don't follow because I choose not to. So followship is ultimately at the heart a choice. Follow me, Jesus says. That in that re, that invitation invites a choice. They left everything and followed him. I choose to follow. Followship is really fundamentally all about choice. Of course, it's a bunch about, about a bunch of other things, which we're now going to talk about. But fundamentally, ultimately, when you distill it down, following is a choice I get to make. A powerful choice that I get to make as a powerful person. What does choice involve? Well, choice involves the choice to listen to leadership, to be influenced by leadership, the choice to trust leadership to submit to leadership, to obey leadership, to support leadership, to champion leadership, and ultimately to challenge leadership. I think it's not a kind of, it doesn't prevent us from challenging, but there are a whole bunch of things that I think are embedded in how the Trinity functions. And that's quite, just to be led involves a whole bunch of stuff, which actually today, can grate on us as we kind of navigate the paradigm shift 
where we all get to be loved, free, and powerful. Do I believe that paradigm shift, that cultural shift, means we no longer get to be led? No, I don't. Does it mean it sweeps away the idea of authority and submission? No, I don't think it does. I believe we have to redeem all of these things by growing past our history and our experience, understanding how the Trinity operates and figuring out how to work with, partner with Holy Spirit to model and reflect the nature of the relationships that we see in the Trinity in the way in which we do life together. And that involves leading and being led. Now, there are different types of follower. I'm going to just finish with these and I'm done. So I'm, in my own view, doing pretty well. But anyway, that's for you to decide. There are different types of follower. I just want to finish with a reflection on the different types of follower. This slide, this next slide is a very busy slide. I've been working on it for quite a while. But I'm trying to figure out the journey that you go on when you join a local church. And just in simple terms, when you first show up, you're a visitor. I'm a visitor. And the church makes me feel very welcome. But if I keep coming long enough, I stop being a visitor. I think I've shared this with you, haven't I? I've shared this in loads of places now. I forget what I've told. Um, then you become somebody who attends. You're no longer a visitor, because actually I know you are, you know us, and we have kind of a superficial relationship, but we just attend. And then there's a tipping point, really, at the attending point, where I actually just become a lodger. But if I like you enough, I might start tithing, in which case I'm become a tenant, because now I'm paying rent. (laughs) I like you enough to stick around, and I like you that much that I'm now going to start paying rent. Jesus did not die that we would become tenants. And actually, if I don't want to pay you, then what I'm going to do is just put myself on a rotor that will make myself feel good enough about what I take from church because I've done the maths. And actually, if I do something for you and I get something back, but I'm not giving, then that's okay. I'm going to make you feel somebody uncomfortable. I hope not. It's not my intention. It is. Um, but actually, the idea, the goal is to belong, is to become a member. Okay, and what I'm trying to do with all these boxes, clever as they are, is work out what the difference is. What is what's that journey really all about? And what does the church need to do in order to help somebody on that journey? So you could be, or you could think about people who are in very different places. But ultimately, I've talked a lot to you about belonging. Belonging is about being a member, a, fa- a family. This is a family and we belong to one another. I believe koinonia is fully expressed through belonging and belonging is about feeling like you're a member not because you've just convinced yourself you are but because you actually are a member of this church so when it comes to followers you know church leaders maybe not necessarily the ones represented here have conversations about how many people have you got in your church such a tricky question to answer but let's assume we've got 100 people i wonder where they are on this journey of belonging you know are there are those 100 people members or do we have tenants church is a service provider and we pay rent or do we have a bunch of people who just attend who kind of just enjoy the service don't really join in you know the goal of leadership is maturity and maturity looks like belonging where you embrace both the blessing and the responsibility of belonging. You've heard me say that. What about some other types of, um, and this is my last slide, by the way, this next slide. I searched high and low for relevant pictures. So this is Huddersfield, football town, squad and spectators, right? So 
You can have followers, really, that are in the crowd. And the language that spectators use is interesting, because they will always talk about the church as them. They. That language is, is kind of indicative of a lack of sense of belonging. Because if I belonged, I wouldn't describe the church as them. I would describe the church as us. So this lens is looking at followers is really all about, how do you think about yourself? Spectator or participator? Part of the crowd or part of the disciples? Because the thing about the disciples was they were really in. They were prepared to pay the price of belonging, the cost of community, to follow Jesus. And that put them into the discipleship bucket, which meant when Jesus said difficult things, they didn't drink your blood. And they're like, they've all gone. Jesus said, why don't you go as well? Where else would we go? Right? Discipleship, belonging, is prepared to pay the price, the cost of community. And it uses language like we and us, and our, not them, and they, and their. Listen for that in yourself, and listen for it in others, because it's symptomatic of somebody's awareness of where they sit in the spectrum of belonging. And then and then you get crit- critics and contributors, right? So if you're on the pitch play, and you're a contributor. If you're in the crowd, you're a critic. And when it doesn't go well, when I mean, I've seen it at Old Trafford, oh my gosh, you know, as soon as they start losing, the whole stadium has got an opinion on that individual or this team. And one of the things as followers that I would really encourage you to do, followership looks like being a powerful participator and a critical contributor. So it doesn't mean you can't challenge. But what it means is you challenge from the pitch. You challenge from the pitch. You're a critical contributor, not a critical spectator. Brené Brown says it rather impolitely, but she says, I am not interested in your feedback unless you are getting your backside kicked on the same pitch as me. And yet the church, unfortunately, can get itself into a situation where it's a critical spectator who is continually voicing, they need to do this, feeling no belonging and membership or ownership, but being prepared to criticize they, them, but they're not on the pitch. I'm really happy with you cr- being critical. But only if you're contributing. Yes. And I love Brené's quote. And I would, I've used it a lot. But if, if you're not contributing, I'm not really interested in your feedback. Keep it to yourself. And go somewhere else. Whew. Right. Fellowship is an extension. Cononia is an extension of perichoresis. Fellowship itself consists of leadership and followership. I've gone very quickly. There's a whole bunch of slides, loads of Bible references. I offer it to you as perspective. We're going to have a break now, I think, and I'm going to do a quick summary. Apologies, I'm about seven minutes over. And then I think we're going to offer, offer up some Q&A. Hope that's okay. Okay, so um, firstly, let me say that I did go, I probably went at twice the speed that I would normally go at because I realized I'd got twice as much to say as I had time. So take the recording, slow it down 50%, and, and, and you'll have what you might consider to be something normal to listen to. Um, but I hope, I hope the speed at which I went didn't um, kind of get in the way of me communicating my heart to you, which is to help. 
always to help. I will do whatever I can to help you on your journey. You have contributed to ours and we have contributed to yours. And that's why I cry every time I come. Because I connect at a very deep level with you as people, as a community. And I can't really do much about that, really. And I don't want to. I love it. So hopefully the speed at which I went wasn't uh, uh, too bad. But I did kind of complete it, if you like. And I just wanted to summarize very quickly. Not not slightly slower than I did. Slowly. Summarize slowly. Um, and then get us into an opportunity to have some level of discussion. Because we learn more from dialogue than monologue. Um, so what did I, what did I really say? I think I said, when it comes to thinking about leadership and followership, what does it mean to be led and to lead? We have to, we have to deal with our history. Our history is a massive challenge to us when we consider these things. So if I drop, would you mind dropping that slide? Cause everybody will read it when I want to kind of like get you listening to me. Cause I know what the slide says. Um, we have to deal with our history. And I, I, I was speaking on Sunday in Vine Life, and, on, and I was speaking about the man lying by the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus came to him and said, get up, roll up your mat and walk. And that was the subject. And I, at the point I made about the mat, rolling up the mat was, whilst the man is lying on that mat, his history is holding him. The moment he gets up and rolls up his mat, he is now holding his history. And that, that's a metaphor for us being able to take hold of our history as press into our futures. So I guess I would use that as a metaphor for we have an opportunity to roll up the mat of our history in relation to leadership and followership. And rather than have it hold us back, we can hold it and take it with us into our future. What didn't work well, but what was true how do we redeem our history when it comes to leadership? One of the ways I think we can do that, and I'm, you know, you, you're all, you always, you, it's all about, I always end up on the cutting edge of something when I come to talk to you because you take me there. Like, I believe that we could, and I've only scratched the surface tonight. We can look at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the perichoresis, and take our eyes off our history and place them on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and there's way more to discover than I've even talked about tonight in the way in which they relate. My thesis, my thought is this, that if the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a dance called the perichoresis by the Eastern Orthodox Church, if it's a dance, then when they said, let us make man in our image, we make them male and female, they were taking the community they enjoyed and they were extending it into creation. And ultimately today, that is meant to be reflected through the koinonia of the church fellowship. And my point was this. Before we start thinking about who's leading and who's following and who's in charge and who's not in charge, remember that first and foremost, we were meant to be fellowship, koinonia. Learning how to live together by being devoted to the one another's. And there's an incumbent, it's incumbent upon us all to understand how we respond to the love one another's, to the be united one another's, to the be humble one another's. Loving one another, being united and being humble are really keys to being led well and to lead well. But then if you take fellowship 
And you then decide what's going on within the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You get both leadership and you get followership. And we looked at the different attributes of that. And then I said, okay, well, let's take a look at the New Testament church and understand what does leadership look like and followership look like there. And the thing I was saying to you is it's not prescriptive. There's no formulas. It's descriptive. There are just pictures painted, words used. And we take all of those words and all those pictures and we figure out what to do with them. The, the point is what we ultimately need is clarity. Who is leading? How do we call, what do we call them? And how do they get to be there? And how do they stay there? And ultimately, I was encouraging us to think about leadership as being anointed by Holy Spirit but recognized and released by us. It seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. That's how we should think about leadership. And then we talked about how we distribute power, hierarchy, anarchy, or heterarchy. I, I can't imagine those have been talked about in church before, so this might be a first. Heterarchy really is my favorite because it's a dance. It's a dance where we all get to be connected to one another, and we're all equal, and we all get to show up in different places including our leaders who we should not put anywhere. We should just let them be where they are. And ultimately, what kind of followers should we be? Well, powerful participators and critical contributors, which means we don't have to switch our brains off. We we are allowed to challenge. But let's do that as people who are on the pitch so that when we criticize, we are criticizing ourselves This church needs to pray more. They need to pray more. Hmm, that means I think we need to pray more, right? It's like like that sense of ownership that comes from belonging as a member, as a part, rather than being just a tenant, paying for services rendered. And those are very different type of followers. I guess I'd, I'd just finish with a personal reflection on leadership. I've written about this, and I'm attempting to write a book on the whole subject. Um about leadership, I mean. Um, I've spent most of my life trying to figure out what to do with the leadership gift that is on my life. You know, I left university, led an evangelistic team for two years, I went to Bible college, married Sarah. At that point, in that point in time, the expectation was church leadership. Because that was like the thing, felt like the thing, the goal. I never really wanted to be a church leader. So it's a bit tricky. So I never really pursued church leadership. I, I'm managing in the IT world. But I also try to figure out, and sometimes I got this right, sometimes I got it wrong, how to lead in the context of the church, as well as leading from it. Um, and in the process, trying to figure out how to work with leaders who are called to lead, to be leaders of the church. And as I stand here tonight, I'm still doing that. <laughs> I'm still figuring out how does my my call. So I talked about, right, calling, about message, about mission, about metron, sphere. Where does that show up? How does that show up? And one of the one of the ways in which it shows up is like this. I don't I'm not a leader of the church. I'm a leader in the church and I'm a leader from it. But I never seek to be a leader of it because I don't believe that's my assignment. Now, people might struggle with that, but I'm just being on, I'm just giving you my honesty, okay? Figuring all of that, choreographing all of that is tricky. 
because lots of people sort of like, I used to go through this phase where people say, are you an elder? It's like a tedious question in the day when it was all about eldership. No, I'm not. But you look like one and sound like one. Mm. Well, you know, but I never wanted to be one. So I never was. And guess what I'm saying is it's not easy. This stuff is not easy. You know, taking a lot of this and making it real is difficult. Um, as I've got older, I, I'm far less concerned about title or role. At one level, I do believe you, we are all leaders. If you decide that leadership is influence, which is how it's most commonly described, then actually we all get to be leaders and we all get to be followers. The question for all of us is, what is our calling? What is our message? What is our mission? And what is our metron? Four great questions that we could all ask ourselves. I think in, in the last 20 years and 30 years, there's been this pendulum swing because at some point in my journey, I realized actually, oh, seemingly now the goal is not to be a church leader anymore. It's to get a master's or a PhD in something that allows you to become the top of your tree in the world because it's all about influencing culture and society. And I didn't do a very good job of that either because I did a degree for a year and then gave up. I didn't give up. Actually, sorry, that's not true. God called me out to do something else, so I did that. But I didn't actually manage to get the master's or the PhD in the top of my tree in that field either. I just muddled through my career and did what was in front of me. But right now, I think, and I've been saying this for a few years, there's a, there's a danger that when we think about we all get to be leaders because we're all loved, free, and powerful, and leadership's about influence. It's great. But we've kind of lost sight of, like, what does it mean to be called to lead the church? I think there's some, like, Banning Liebscher talks about, like, only 3% of us get to lead from behind the pulpit as a metaphor for how many people actually get to be leaders of the church. But it's actually a very small number. But I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of the fact that there are men and women who are called of God and anointed by him to lead the church. And recognizing and releasing who those people are is critical to not just our survival, but to us thriving in the way that God intended. And the problem with our history is it confuses us and it creates ambiguities. And we, all of us, as we roll up the mat of our history, my encouragement to you is to become as clear as you can about what you really think. Not just about leadership in generic terms, but about the leaders that you have in this church. How you see them, what you discern about them to be true, and how you then manage yourselves towards them. I say often, being a leader of the church is the most difficult job on the planet. And I say that repeatedly because I really believe with all my heart it's true. Sarah and I spend lots of time with lots of church leaders. And I say this, I wouldn't want to be a church leader unless I was called to be because it'll kill you. It's a very, very difficult and challenging job, which is why I think the writer to the Hebrew said, whatever you do, make it a joy. Why would you say that? Well, I think because that's what the Bible says, right? I'm, I'm getting over that. I'm getting over that interaction. <laughs> More work required. <laughs> um, And actually, those of us who have leadership on our lives and we feel a sense of leadership, one of the most amazing supporting those who are called to lead the church and not to attempt to lead it for them. And I have struggled with that sometimes. I think 
me showing up, and I'm, I feel like now I'm trying to lead this thing, and I, I know that's not what I'm called to do. So I've had to kind of like step back a number of times where I found myself moving into a position that I'm not meant to take. And just working out, what is it I'm called to do? Who am I called to be? What is my mission? What is my message? What is my metron? And making sure where I figure out and get that right. It's a dance, and I have stood on many toes. That's my testimony, and I'm still working it out. I'm still working it out today. So I am by no means an expert in any ways. But having decided who your leaders are, what you call them, it's incumbent on all of us then to figure out what it looks like and sounds like to be really good followers. And followership is modeled by Jesus and probably as well as it's modeled by anybody. It's beautifully embodied in him. Of course it is. I would say that, wouldn't I? But it's true. It is true. And, you know, followers come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. None of us is perfect. But my final point again would be, it's okay to challenge, but make sure you're on the pitch. And if you're not, if you're not on the pitch, either stop challenging or get on the pitch. And if, and, it, and if this is not the right stadium, if this is not where you're meant to be, then go and find out where it is. Yeah? But don't stay on the crowd, in the crowd and criticize, because that's not really followership. That's something else. <laughs> and, um, and with all of my heart, I would want you as a community to reflect the dance of the Trinity in the way in which you figure out how to do fellowship, how you figure out to do leadership, and how you figure out to do fellowship. And I hope tonight when you slow me down to half speed, you'll figure out what kind of conversations you can have with the Lord and with each other about that. Because I didn't intend to give you any answers. I just came to encourage you to have a conversation and I hope I've achieved that. So I'll stop now because I think if there are some questions that anything I've said um, provokes, then Richard's here to answer them. So that's... um, he knew that was coming, by the way, I think, yeah. No, I'm joking, but, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's got any question mark here, Should I take this off, or do you want me to leave? Uh, do you want me to have this on? Or? Keep that on, yeah. Leave that on, okay, all right. And this. So who's going to go first? And then, who has got a question or a comment that they'd like to make? There's a lot to think about there, isn't there? Here we go. You're talking about followers. Um, as a follower, do you agree with the thing that there's like sons and hirelings? If you're a son of the house or a daughter of the house, you follow because it's your inheritance. And if you're not a good follower, it's more or less because you paid to follow. You just come and do minimum because that's what you get paid for. <laughs> like being in, you know, secular world. Some people do more than the share. Some people just about do the share. Mm-hmm. And it, if, you're a, if you're a son of the house or a daughter of the house, if it's your home, your spiritual home, then it's like your inheritance that you're working for. Yeah. And it's not work, it's a joy. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I, I think there are probably many different lenses that you could look at followership through, and that's another lens, which I think is a Bible lens that you can look at, yeah. I think as mature sons and daughters... We serve because we choose to, not because we have to, because followership ultimately is a choice. It's not coercion, it's a choice. I choose to follow. Why do I make that choice? 
I can make that choice for many reasons, and that's it's good to understand those reasons and reflect on those ourselves. You know, sometimes we can end up doing things because we just want to please people. We can do things for the right thing for the wrong reason. And maturity in a son and a daughter looks like I'm doing all of this for the right reasons. I'm doing the right things, and I'm doing them for the right reasons. And that's about becoming healthy in the house. Yeah, you know, lots of like some children, compliant kids will do things because they just want to make their parents happy. And that's something they have to get over in a load of life. Because I've just learned that the way I get to be accepted is by doing what I'm told, as opposed to I serve as a really healthy son and daughter. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I wasn't that good. <laughs> yeah, the most- isn't that the question? And if, it's th- if you're thinking about a question, somebody else is probably also thinking about it. So you're probably helping somebody else by asking it. If you're thinking it's too controversial, it's a good one. Mark, you talked about um, agreeing with the Holy Spirit and and that it seemed a good idea um, <laughs> that we agree with the Holy Spirit. Um, but I think, and I'm not really asking you for an answer because I'm because I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. But it would seem that sometimes the most difficult bit is identifying or agreeing who the Holy Spirit anointed leaders are. So if we if we identify who the Holy Spirit appointed leaders are, then it it almost seems like an easy step to be able to say, well, we'll agree with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes identifying who those leaders are is actually quite, or, or agreeing who they are, I think can be a real challenge. Um, and I wonder if you have any... Thoughts on that? <laughs> There's a question in there somewhere, isn't there? Yeah. 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 So I, I think I think that's a fair comment. I, I don't, you know, I think it's, you know, we're all human, aren't we, right? So I think when we bring our humanity to bear in any kind of conversation about what we see, and in the New Testament, they fell out over John Mark, right? So it didn't seem good to me. <laughs> it seemed very wrong to me. So we have a great, you know, glimpse in the New Testament of the challenges associated with recognizing leaders. I think, you know, this is where I would say there is, you know, the importance of understanding order within the church is really helpful. So, you know, we talked about apostles and prophets, you know, and Jesus is the cornerstone. So I said the building has a cornerstone and a foundation. And Ephesians, you know, four is very clear. There's a foundation. So I think it's important when when things are challenging, for example, that we defer to, we recognize and defer to God-given order, divine order in how decisions get to be made. Yeah, One of the, cha- the challenges with the love, free and powerful tidal wave as it swept across all of us was this idea that somehow we all get to be powerful means that divine order gets swept away too. Do you know what I mean? So, for example, if it came to a matter of doctrine, you know, Richard in his apostolic gift, I would absolutely defer to him. Because he's gifted and anointed of God in a role that means his opinion in that situation actually is not any more valid than mine. But if my, so it doesn't invalidate my have a different opinion, but actually in, in his role in relation to the church, then 
it's wisdom to know what his metron is when it comes to things like doctrine. Do you know what I mean? So one of the ways in which I would suggest you can deal with these difficulties is to discern divine order, to understand what order is in the body. Yeah, and I'm, now I'm starting to, I guess, leak some of my own views of what the leadership paradigm could and should look like. And I, my paradigm definitely includes apostles and prophets, evangelists. I haven't swept Ephesians 4 away. I'm so, I've sought to roll up the mat of my history and redeem those things in a way that works in the context of what I see and how the Trinity operates. Does that, does that answer your question rather than dance around it? No? Yeah. And actually, do you know what? I, I posted this on Facebook the other day and it was probably the least like thing I've ever said in, in years, which was fine. Um, but I said, you know, the choice to follow is my decision to elevate my need to be led over my need to be right. And social media went dead quiet on me. <laughs> so I'll say it again. My choice to follow is my choice to elevate my need to be led over my need to be right. I always want to be right. But actually my greatest need, maybe my greater need is to be led. And that's sometimes about submission, isn't it? You know, do I need to agree with everything that my leaders do and say? I think the answer to that is no. <laughs> Ask Phil Smith and Sarah <clears throat> and Richard. Um, but it's not about my decision to agree, it's my choice to follow. You will search long and hard to find find that. Where's the leader who agrees with everything I'm saying, in particular the fact that I'm great? Because <laughs> what they're really looking for is recognition, right? You find that you search long and hard, but actually the call is not to find somebody that you agree with about everything. It's like, is this person somebody that I can follow? If it is, then I choose to follow you. And now that comes with a whole bunch of things. I choose to trust you. I choose to champion you. I choose to challenge you as somebody who's on the pitch, not somebody who's in the crowd, right? It's a whole bunch of stuff, but it, it's, it's not necessarily about agreement about everything. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm talking about my personal experience now because it isn't about that. I look at Phil and Vine Life and Phil and Sarah and I think I'd do quite a lot of things different if I was running the church, but guess what? I'm not running the church <laughs> because I'm not called, anointed, It's not my assignment. It's not my metron. I can show up here as a leader in and from, and I can bring influence as a father, now as a grandfather, but I'm not leading this church. They are. And it's very important to be able to recognize and discern that. Yeah? For me, at least, anyway. I don't want to turn every question into a preach. Sorry. Yeah. Hi, Mark. Um, I, I don't know if it's possible to go back to the slide, and it looked like a seesaw to me. Or the journey of belonging, yeah. yeah There's a bit um, in the middle where it talks about, yeah. This is one of the little bits, you, you, you did rush a little bit through this, but uh, that's fine. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Feedback. <laughs> I, I, I found it interesting. I, I, are you meaning it to be like a seesaw effect? So if we... I just misunderstood, maybe I've misunderstood it. So is it when we tip towards becoming belonging, we have uh, less visiting or people feeling that they're, they're 
Is that how that's meant to look? Okay, so basically this is the journey. I'm trying to describe here the journey of an individual through a church community over time. Yeah. The reason why I've got it as a tipping point, I could have put four blocks in actually, because the way I described it to you was four very different phases, if you remember. Visitor made welcome, attender, lodger, and then tenant, you know, as opposed to lodger tenant, as opposed to, to, um, member, right? The reason why it's a tipping point, because I think, I think lots of people end up on that seesaw in church communities where they kind of, they kind of like flip and flop. From between, like, like, do I, I'm a tender, but I could, I could move on. I could, you know, attending. Actually, I quite like it here, so I'll tithe. Preacher says something I don't like, I stop tithing. Do you know what I mean? They, they flip flop. You laugh, right? But I'm telling you now, telling you now. So they flip flop in this bit here. And as a, as I guess as a consultant, a management consultant, I'm fascinated by organizations. I'm really interested in this people group. Because I think they end up in a big car park in the church. And actually, I think if the goal of ma- is maturity, one of my things is like, how do we get people out of that flip-flop zone where they're half in and they're half out? They're not visitors anymore because we all know who, who we are, but we flip-flop between belonging and not belonging. And that creates some really difficult – it's not a happy and healthy place to be. Does that, does that help? I mean, that slide I could talk about all night because I've been working on that for m- weeks, months, years, trying, trying to refine. And I probably might say it slightly differently now, but that's the reason for the flip-flop, Yeah. People, a lot of people get stuck on that seesaw. Why, why do you think that is? Why do we do that? Oh gosh, ask me another question. Um, <laughs> I think, um, I think because the cost of community is quite high. And lots of us are not prepared to pay that price. And I don't just mean financially, I mean in every other way too. Finances is just one aspect of it. You know, I think it's like, if I, if I really belong here, then I'm gonna embrace a level of ownership. It's gonna, re- devotion, you know, all of those things that are embedded in that word, they devoted themselves. You know, they, they paid a very high price to belong in those days. You know, there's, there's, there's this paradox between, they grew, but people were afraid to join them. <laughs> you know, that sense of like, cause I think it's about the, co- I think that's all about the cost of community. And, and also, sadly, a lot of people have been really hurt by the church. So one of the things about this role, I am managing the extent to which I am in. And I can keep everybody at a safe distance. And if things get tough, I can move you out. And if things are okay, I can move you in. But but I'm not really fully, fully really. I'm, I'm getting to deep, deep stuff now, but I don't really fully belong. Does that help? It's a great question. Oh, brilliant. It's brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you get the slides, if you think of, I mean, it's sincerely, if you kind of like see something and you think you want, there's that, that's not going to be the way it looks in a, in a month's a year's time. I'll continue to refine it, but anything you see would be amazing to share with me. Thank you. Yeah.
Yeah. yeah. I am. I am. I am. I am. So. <laughs> Yeah. But now I feel like I belong. Yes, come on. Um, and the reason that I feel like I belong is because people have invested time in me. And I've invested time in people and the space as well. Beautiful. And everybody that comes here in a corporate sense, because I've worked in corporate world where we look at fully engaged mm-hmm. engaged and fully diseng- and disengaged mm-hmm. and the variety between the seesaw of people mm. the fact that we should and i realize that i'm a stakeholder in mm. this community and in this mm. family too, and it's a and it's a week beautiful from and i yeah. love this place so thank you so much, much for saying that that's amazing yeah now don't make me cry just saying <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Hi, Hi. <laughs> You're following, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I won. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, we're, we're still friends, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and just, just <laughs> two things. One, one, as Richard said, the word stakeholder. Then I remembered that there's a church that I that I grew up in that went from membership to to the, the church being the individuals are no longer members. They call themselves partners or stakeholders, and they they choose to become mm-hmm. invested in the church. And I think that investment is really important. And but for, as someone that went to a different church in Leicester for donkey's years and really struggled to feel invested heart, soul and mm-hmm. and practically and pragmatically and financially in, in, in that church because it just never convinced me that I was a part of something here to be part of something, to feel as well led to be able to ask questions, to be able to explore kind of my own questions without feeling that I have to agree with people or that I have to disagree with people mm. or that I have to be forced into a box to think one thing about another thing and and that's been really important to me and I don't I don't feel excluded by thinking one thing where my friend thinks another thing Great. because with the, the the centrality of the cross and Trevor's talk a few years ago about um uh breaking down the idol of certainty and how we how when we focus but wholly on the cross and how we focus wholly on um, giving our heart to him yeah. and being in relationship yeah. with him, yeah. then all the other things, including leadership, including membership, more easily. Absolutely. And we might still fall out with each other. We might still disagree mm-hmm. with one another. But if we do that with our eyes fixed on him, and just going back to what Richard said, stakeholders, investors, and actually mm. it's a businessy word, mm. but it, it describes to me far more than being like a member of a club 
or a yes. kind of, you know, I'm going to sign up and subscribe to this. Actually, I'm yes. going to invest yes. and get back and give and get back. And we work together on this. And that's yes. that stood out to me. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know whether that was a comment or a question, but. No, it was beautiful. I yeah. will allow you to speak now, Andy. <laughs> uh, hi, Mark. Hi. Uh, I was just going to just gonna ask, so I guess this is a message you've also been working on for a long time, and I guess a message you've delivered elsewhere, and, and I'm just wondering, what what sort of fruits have you seen come from this type of approach elsewhere, um, and, or, or are we the Petri dish, and you're just going to see what yeah. type of crazy fungus grows, or, <laughs> or what, what comes out of the pot? So, um, I think I said this to you last time I come, I think you're like my R&D community, research and development community. I've not shared this message anywhere else. I've shared aspects of it, but this is the first time I've shared this message in this way. So if it if it helps you and there are there is fruit from it, then you'll be the first to know. Let me know. Um, I don't say that in any kind of you know falsely humble way. I I bring my perspective and I, I share out of my journey and my story and I, and I share it with you to contribute to your story and your journey. I believe that's part of my assignment, if you like, in that sense. And it leverages who I am and my gifting and anointing um, as, as somebody that seeks to add the strength and resources of his life to church leaders and to churches. But it, it's not anything I've shared before. What I would say is that this message is, is entirely, I feel, coherent and consistent with everything I have shared with you in recent months and years in the, con- in the, in the context of community and belonging and becoming. And all of the things that I've shared with you before tonight, I absolutely have shared with other churches so for example we've been out of vine life for four sundays on the trot you know when we were in switzerland with the church in lausanne um and uh, and i shared that message that i shared with you there and with other churches so i i am um showing up in this way in other churches but this message no is the first time i shared it in this way yeah i, I don't know whether that makes you feel good or or not good um but let me know how it goes <laughs> Uh, oh, um, <laughs> sorry, John. I, I always feel Jesus is a really good example um, to get to go at, and, and a good example of a leader of the church, a leader in the church, but a leader from the church as well. And, and mm. I guess it talks about um, Jesus, who was God, grew in favour with God, and grew in favour with. The people around him grew in favour with men. And I just wonder mm. if you want to, 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 to reflect on what does that look like for leaders of the church to grow in favour with God, to grow in favour with man? You're the second person that's asked me that question in two weeks. There's a young man in Vine Life who's going like, I'm doing a Bible study next week on favour. And he asked me exactly that question. And I smart thought, kid. that's a great question. Well, I don't know, asking me was maybe the smartest thing he'd ever done. Um, I think there's, there's something really fascinating about the fact that it's possible for Jesus to grow in favor. Because um, I think that just brings our Christology into, you know, like what does it really mean for him to be God and then to empty himself and become like one of us? Holding those tensions of his divinity and his humanity in you know, holding those two things together. But nevertheless, the Bible says that's true. And I believe it is true that we as individuals, not just as leaders, but as people, 
grow in, can grow in favor with God and with man. I think the question then is what is favor? So you have to understand what favor is and you have to then think about what is it that we might do or not do that would contribute to us growing in favor? Yeah. And I think that, you know, you could say in simplistic terms, favor is the blessing of God. I think it's the empowering of God. I think favor is like, a, I was thinking of favor like a tailwind. You know, tail, when you're doing something and the favor of God is on you, then actually there's something, you feel the tailwind of him on, on you when you're doing it. You know, like almost to the point where that, that felt like easy, easier. And then you realize, your wings, that's favor of, um, I, I think growing in favor of God probably is to do with a number of things, being faithful. I think, you know, there's a biblical principle of increase that's associated with stewardship. So I grow in favor because I take the favor that I have today and I steward it really well. You know, and I think there's a biblical principle then of stewardship that says, as I steward my favor, but also as I steward my talent. So if I think about my career in the workplace, I only ever applied for one job, the first job I ever got. Every other job came to me. I was headhunted three, four times over my career. And I'm not saying that because that makes me special. It just makes me someone who has enjoyed a huge amount of favor with men and women who chose to recognize something in me and wanted more of it. I always attribute my career to the favor of God and the fact I grew in favor. But if I then was to think about why did that happen, what it, what it did, all those people saw me steward what I could do well. They, they saw me steward what I, what I knew how to do and what I didn't know how to do really well. And that made me attractive to them, so they took more. So I would say, simplest, in the very simplest form, one of the keys is faithfulness, stewarding well what we have. Yeah. And the two things are linked. I think favor of God and favor of men are linked together. They are linked. Sorry, Richard. Go off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just um was just thinking as you're talking, Mark, and, and just as well, um, as we grow in favor with God and, and with man, it's just so important using the example of Jesus not to um confuse popularity with the favor of you know, that whole thing of growing mm, in favor great. of man because Jesus went from crowds shouting Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord great point. to crowds sh- shouting crucify him. Um and probably um many of the same people <laughs> shouting one week later, um, crucify him. So just that whole thing of mm, it's not right. about Jesus had loads of critics all the way through his ministry. So we yeah. have to work out, and I don't have all the answers yet, but we have to work out yeah. what that means to grow in favor with man, but still have plenty of critics um, along the way. Mm. Um, and I'm sure the favor of God sustains you through that. Great, Stefan, that's a good answer. It's 20 past nine. I don't know what time you want to finish, but, you know, if there are any more. Any don't leave the room with a burning question. It'll set no, you exactly. on fire. Are there any other questions? If not, I just, if I could just return to Andy's question, and I, and I, I want to just make sure, because it, it wouldn't be a good thing to contradict you right now, Mark, but I want to sort oh, of make no, sure. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, um, feel because free. <laughs> I, I just want to, I just want to draw attention to, I know what you're saying when you say whether we are, the research and development thing. So there's aspects of how we work this out in practice, which are definitely, we're, we're finding out as we go. But there are, I think you'd agree though, there are principles. And I think this came through one of your slides. There are biblical principles. So what you spoke about, divine order, the Holy Spirit recognizing, uh, uh, releasing and, and seeing what the Holy Spirit is doing. Ephesians 4, apostles and prophets. These are things that we're holding on to, which are, which are, 
are consistent with Scripture. So I'm just I'm just aware that this series is the R and F series, which is Roots and Foundations <laughs> series. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what we're doing is so the principles yeah. are founded in Scripture. Working that out in practice is what Mark is particularly yeah, no, so I, good yeah. at helping us. What, what I was saying was I'd never preached this message before. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I've, it was a personal reflection on yeah. the way in which I'm thinking about what I'm doing with you, which is I'm sharing something that is. I've never shared with anybody else. So in that sense, it's part of my research and my own development. What, yeah, but, but the substance of what I'm saying. So when, I don't we disagree and you're not contradicting me, Trevor. No, no, I didn't think I was. I didn't think um, I was. And I wouldn't want a, to. It's, it's a clarification or a contradiction, I think, in the sense that, yeah, some of the stuff I've shared, you know, I, I believe it's what I see in scripture and I believe it's what you'd see if you looked, you know, and, um, but I'm not, you know, suggesting it's the whole story. You're, that's yours to write. Sorry, I didn't want to correct your correction because no, 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 I just I just didn't want to like leaders disagreeing this is, agreeably. This is where we now dance just to prove the point. Yeah, no, no. Go, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop talking now. You've got to have the last word. <laughs> no, I want to just check if there are any other burning questions. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. <laughs> Say thank you, Mark. I'm not putting you in the Trinity there. I'm just saying thank you. No, there are no vacancies <laughs> in the Trinity, Trevor. There no They're all full. The but thank you. <laughs> and let's express our thanks again to Mark. And it was really good. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the next one of these uh, sessions is in September. So look at.